Sales Tuners, Episode 96, Sean Higgins, Entrepreneur in Residence at Techstars. They, they believe you, they trust you as the salesperson, they, they see the demo and the product, but they, at this point, most people have been burned with, with good-looking demos that resulted in bad products or bad rollouts. This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown, the only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is win, 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 no matter what. Got money on my mind, I can never get enough. And every time I step up in the building, everybody hands go up. It's time. It's time. It's Sales Tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Lee Iacocca, who said, so what do we do? Anything. Something. So long as we don't sit there. If we screw it up, start over. Try something else. If we wait until we've satisfied all the uncertainties, it may be too late. Today's guest is an entrepreneur in residence at Techstars. Sean Higgins led sales for his previous venture, Ilos, starting from scratch and growing to over $1.5 million in revenue. Today, he specializes in helping new companies use outbound tactics to both validate product market fit and to gain early traction. Before we dive in, I want to send a quick shout out to fellow sales podcaster and former guest on the show, Scott Ingram, for his five-star Apple podcast review as he said, There are a lot of sales podcasts out there, but Jim brings a new level of professionalism to the game. I especially enjoy the thoughtful recaps at the end of each episode. Scott, you know I've already got mad respect for you and all the work you put in every day, so I greatly appreciate the note. Your t-shirt is already on its way down to Austin. All right, make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 96. But now, let's get to the conversation where Sean gets right to the point and the importance of top-of-the-funnel lead generation. For me, I think a lot of early-stage companies really struggle with top-of-funnel, right? So every single time I'd, I'd meet with a founder, i get very passionate about what they're working on, but they would always kind of tell me the same, the same story of, oh, I just need to get more you know, predictable leads, I need to get more top-of-funnel. And I really wanted to, to try to demystify that because there, uh, there are tactics and, and process that you can use to generate those leads, generate that, that business for your company. And I wanted to get that knowledge out there to the, to the folks. Well, I want to stay personal real quick. One of the things I love to do is ask guests to tell me something fun about themselves. And I had to laugh when you told me that you desperately need lessons on Mario Kart 64. Tell me how that revelation came to be, Sean. Oh, man. So at, uh, at Techstars, we have an N64. And so I'll play with uh, the program manager, the managing director, just the folks that are involved in our program. And then there's another Techstars program in town and we'll play. And I am no good at this game. I don't know what it is. Like, so Jim, I, I remember I, I had a GameCube, you know, I had, I had the systems growing up. I, I know the buttons, but it just doesn't quite work out for me, man, every time we play. So that is still an open offer. If anyone can teach me some Mario Kart, I would be eternally grateful. I think we can definitely find someone to connect with you. Maybe get some rainbow road training, you know, the one that goes for like seven minutes per lap, something like that. It's uh, absolutely crazy. One of my favorite games growing up. Sean, as you know, in this show, we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that has led to your success. And I want to talk about ILOs today. I want to talk about Techstars, and we'll start there. But uh, tell me what that is, and, and, and tell me how you spend your days at the company. We are a top accelerator program globally. We've got over 20 locations across the world. And what we do is we recruit companies and have companies apply to our various programs. 
We pick 10 companies in every program that we work with over a three-month period. So we use a cohort model. And during this time, we're teaching these companies and working with them, trying to understand how we can help them better go to market. Do they need to refine their messaging? Do they need to refine their process? Helping them get their story together. And ultimately, you know, what does it take for them to scale? Are they looking at fundraising, helping them kind of tell that story? In terms of what I do, I spend most of my time in program as mentor in residence, which means I work with all 10 of the companies on a regular basis, helping them move the needle, whether it's building prospect lists, connecting with new customers, talking with enterprise clients, if they're kind of going that route, ultimately trying to help them move the needle any way I can. I love that you get to do that for 10 different clients, uh, you know, whether it be entrepreneur residence uh, or, or whatever we want to call it. Just that notion of getting to work with multiple companies that all have a similar pain, similar problem, and you get to kind of apply those learnings that uh, you've been you've picked up along the way. So let's talk about that. Like you haven't always been the person you are today. Take me way back. How did you actually get into sales? I founded a company uh, pretty much right out of college. Uh, it was a B2B video company, and we, we sold into kind of enterprises and mid-market companies. And there were three founders. It was myself, uh, Peter, who was my best friend growing up. He was our CTO. And then Nick, who I met in school, who was kind of our, who was our product visionary and a great leader on the team. And there was one day we were at our old you know, office space sitting around and Peter was typing away on the keyboard, coding something. And Nick was drawing something on a piece of paper, you know, the next product wireframe or feature. And I, at this time, I was doing financial stuff. I, my degree was in accounting, right? So I was doing, you know, paying our bills on time, I guess, because there's really not much for a, a finance person to do at an early company. And I remember looking around the room, Jim, and just going, who's going to get in front of the customers? I'm like, it's not either of these guys. And so it kind of fell down on me to, to go out there and start building relationships really from the ground up. That's fascinating. I actually, I once had a founder tell me that uh, this product that you know I was working for him. He said, you know, this product sells itself. And when he said that to me, I just knew my time was over. I, it was time for me to move on. It was time to go somewhere else. And uh, it's just fascinating because, as you said, you know, this thing is not going to sell itself. Someone has to go pick up the ball and actually get in front of some customers. So I love that. But how, how did you do that, uh, Sean? Because you didn't have any, for, or not that I'm aware of, you didn't have any formal sales training. Like, how, what was that? Uh, how'd you get that initiative? How'd you get the ball rolling? Like, talk to me about that. It was the school of hard knocks from day one. So I didn't really know, you know what outbound was. I didn't know anything about inside sales. But I, I kind of knew that the most important thing I could be doing at that stage of the business was talking to customers. Or I didn't know that, but I, I thought that. I, I theorized that, right? And so I said, okay, well, what if I just sent an email to 20 random prospects? So I went on LinkedIn and I scraped some emails. I knew how to do that already. So I didn't start quite at square zero. But then I, I sent these emails and I said, oh, great. I just sent 20 emails. This is great. This is sales. And then I waited. And of course, nothing happened. And so then I emailed 20 other people, you know, on a different day. And then, of course, nothing happened. My, my email wasn't quite as refined as I would have liked. Rather, my pitch wasn't as refined as it needed to be to get attention with a prospect, to get somebody on the phone, to get a meeting. Ultimately, it was from that series of, of attempts and just kind of you know, all those stumblings over the last, you know, several years that I learned kind of how you actually go about growing the business. Let's get kind of, kind of specific into that, Sean. I know, you know, one of the hardest things to overcome uh, as a new company is that no one's ever heard of you. Uh, so a lot of people don't even want to have a conversation with you. How did you get in the door? How did you refine that process? And, and, and you just open up those conversations. I'm a big three questions guy, which is, you know, you're looking at why anything, why us, why now? And those three questions really were, became my guiding principles for, for how I wanted to pitch. Because you're absolutely right, new company, 
uh, I'm sorry, who are you with, right? On the phone, very first line, you know? So the, the very first question, why anything, is really why your category matters. And the nice thing about ILOS, you know, my startup, is that we were in an established category. There are a lot of enterprise video providers. You know, we competed with Kaltura and Panopto and, and people that had been in the market for a while. And so we could explain our category, you know, enterprise video and what that meant. And people generally kind of understood that. And they said, oh, yeah, we have enterprise video. We're doing stuff like that today. Then we would go into why us. And this is really a, a big, big point for us. You know, we had better usability. So you'd get higher engagement on your numbers, especially in enterprise. There's always this risk that you spend 300K on the software that no one uses. And then when it's up for renewal next year, you look, you look pretty dumb, right, in front of the, the leadership team trying to justify the, the purchase. Yeah. So, so those two pieces were, were huge. And the last one was why now? And that was the one that I think took me the longest to get, to get good at, right? Uh, why now is why should you do this today? And you know, how, to, how to make this a higher priority for some folks? And really, that was mainly learning how to manufacture some of that urgency. And these were all via email? You were trying to get all three of these questions answered via email? Yeah, not all at once. So my idea with, with pitching was first I would try why anything. So my first emails were all about why anything, like educating on the category, why the category mattered. And my goal with, with this was, you know, you have to almost kind of answer the questions in order because if you're jumping in saying why you're the best video platform and no one knows what a video platform is, right? It, it doesn't quite work out. They're like, I, I don't care that you're the best one. I, why do I need this? <laughs> um, so that was definitely kind of how I would start. I started with why anything and then I would go into why us. Once I knew people understood the category. I'd say, hey, you're probably using X, Y, and Z. Later on, I would actually qualify out leads that were using other products and target them a little bit differently so I could get really specific as to why we would beat their product. And then from there, you know, going into why now, trying to give them a, a reason to move. We used a lot of exploding offers very successfully. We had one promo. Oh man, I, I love this one, Jim. This one, we had, uh, we had a show us your bill promo. So if you're on one of our certain competitors that we knew charged a lot more than us and you show us your bill, your annual contract, we'll guarantee you a 20% savings when you make the switch to our product. But you had to show us the bill and meet with us within like a certain period of time. We got so many contracts. It was great. That may be one of the coolest things. It's definitely the most original thing that I've heard on the show. I'm, I'm over you know 95 episodes in, never heard that. Uh, and in my 15 years of sales, I've never heard something like that. The exploding offer, show us your bill. I, I think I might take some notes, Sean, and go work on something like that. Um, but, but let's circle back to that why us, right? So you know, I know you focus on uh, a lot of uh, startups. Obviously, you were a startup yourself, small companies, zero to one million. So even this notion of coming out and claiming to be the best. Now, I may be wrong. Maybe you did have the best enterprise video platform, but it kind of seems uh, uh, non-genuine or I can't, disingenuine, right? Like you weren't really the best. So how do you start to position that why us when sure, maybe you're cheaper or maybe you have a different feature set or something like that, but you're not the best. Talk to me about that. I think you don't actually want to position yourself as the best because oftentimes when I meet with startups, I ask them intentionally, who's your competition in the market? Who do you go head to head with in deals? And then you just stop and listen. Most times the founders are just going to, they're going to crap all over the competition. They, they just think, oh, they don't do this. They don't do that. This is terrible. That's bad. And that just makes you look like you don't know anything about your market. At the end of the day, you're not a knowledgeable person if you're thinking that you beat the, your competition on every single relevant category. So rather than thinking about it from that perspective, that holistic perspective, you want to try to think about what are the couple things that you can definitely do better than someone else? Uh, maybe you're the low cost provider. Maybe that's your thing. You have lightweight features and you're a low cost play. 
maybe there's, you know, you're a fully fleshed out product, but you've got a couple things that you're doing a lot better than anyone else. Then maybe you're kind of this, this value add, this benefits play, right? So just know, know your competition and know where you win. Like at the end of the day, there are certain deals where you would get on the phone with them. And if, if they were doing certain things, you'd say, this is not a deal for us. We need to walk away. But the only way you're going to get to that point is by going in eyes wide open and knowing where you excel and where your competitors do. You know, Sean, I hope you were taking notes on that. I, I, there's so much value to that. Like, Don't ever, ever, ever disparage your competitors as much as you want to. Even if you know they're saying bad things about you, I can't tell you how many deals I've won because when I ask them, hey, you know, who are you working with or who else are you talking to? And you know, they'll tell me, oh, the XYZ company. You know, My response could immediately be like, oh, let me tell you why we're better than them. But instead, I simply say, oh, the XYZ company. Wow, they're really good. And I take that you know long pause, and what typically happens is I hear, well, they're not that good, and to, I, I just act shocked. So, well, what do you mean? Tell me more. And now all of a sudden, they are going to tell me all the reasons why X Y Z company is not that good, and I don't have to be the one that disparages my partner. In fact, I, a couple of deals I know that I won was because I did not disparage them. I, I simply asked and I said, "Hey, you know, they're great," and they said, "Wow, I, you know, I can't believe that you're saying that they're great because when we asked them about you." They told us like 13 things that were really bad about you. And, I, you know, we, it kind of turned us off. Man, I love that. Yes, it, it's totally the case. There were even scenarios where we would have a customer that was just a, such a, a bad fit that we would say, hey, like, we're, we're probably not for you. You know, you should know that there are a lot of other players in the space. And there were times when we even recommended not one of our direct competitors, but an indirect competitor because they just wanted to do something different with video. And when they came, when time came around for them to actually need enterprise video, they came back to us because we had this this level of credibility that you couldn't get anywhere because we were the we were the guys who recommended somebody else who who does that right so keep keep that context as you're going through your process know where your competitors win and and don't be afraid to to just call it how it is you know Gardner Gardner may have actually done some things right by showing people where they play in the space so don't be afraid to to use some of that stuff you know, the only thing that I might add to that is like also get to know your competitors, like literally who they are as people, uh, because if they know who you are and they know that, hey, we're not a, we're not a fit for everybody. Right. And, and they understand your feature set and how you're different. They may be the ones that start to send uh, you deals. So I, I want to lean into that a little bit. You know, in the early stage, uh, Sean, it seems like everyone is uh, talking about business development and sales and you know whether or not they're the same or not. But how do you define those two things? And, and again, early stage, which one should we be using? Business development is much more of a channel play. So either you're going through a marketplace like the Salesforce App Exchange, or you've got a reseller who's selling your product and then makes a commission on every deal that they sell, or even uh, you know some channels you can get kind of these product integrations where you know someone will buy a certain offering type and your your package comes included as a as a part of that. So kind of a, a bundle deal in terms of of you know whether an early stage company should be pursuing business development or or sales it's one i i just always have to laugh at it man because you know if you're asking someone else to sell your product and you don't know how to sell your product it just it just never works out well right in your favor and so i i think early stage call it you know zero to, to one and a half zero to three million really focused on on honing your message honing your process so that you and your sales team can push product after that, channels can be great. Channels are a lot of work. They sound easy on paper. Oh, I'm in the Salesforce app exchange. The leads are just going to start falling from the sky. 
it's a ton of work. You've got to make sure that you're driving traffic to that app, that app store page, that you've identified the right keywords, that you're you know, either turning on this integration for existing customers. And, and that's probably the easiest type of channel you can have. It's just one of those marketplace integrations, and it's a lot of work. So just keep, keep that in mind and go in knowing, knowing what it'll cost you to get some benefit. You know, when I started my business as a sales coach, I talked to a lot of founders and it was funny to me, at least how many wanted to truly outsource the learning or the figuring out of how do I go sell this product? I'm like, hold up. Um, You know, if you were to bring me in as, you know, as as a coach, but as a VP of sales or a first sales rep, and it was my job to completely learn how to sell it for you, you're either going to pay me a lot of money, like a lot of money, or you're going to give me a whole bunch of equity. Because if I'm the guy who has to figure out the revenue channel, there's no business without me. So come on. And so to your point there, you as that at company, you've got to be the one who figures out the, the flywheel and that engine of growth and how you do it before you can uh, outsource it. And so to your point of, of channel, don't just think that all these other channels out there that you can just show them the product and all of a sudden they're going to go out and do all the hard work for you because there's really no incentive uh, for them to do that, right? Unless you're, again, going to give them a whole bunch of money. So how, how do you start to, to uh, once the channel is a viable opportunity, how do you start to put that uh, uh, plan together for people, Sean? If they're looking to go the biz dev route, I really strongly recommend you know, identifying the type of channel. So one is picking the right partner. So even if I'm looking at a reseller model, I want resellers who are you know probably not going to step on each other's toes. I've had actually issues with this where sometimes you try to activate one too many resellers and you find out that two of your resellers are competing in the similar region. And then it really gets hairy if you've given them different uh, sell sheets or different like pricing breaks. You get uh, some upset partners and you obviously do not want to do that. So what, what I generally recommend is, is look at the partner. You know, what other products are they selling? Where do you stack up in their portfolio? Salespeople, you know, I, I love it. I'm one of them. You know, I, we're, we're very, we can be very coin operated, right? So if I'm just a rep somewhere, I'm thinking about where can I get the most commission? Where should I be spending my time? And if your product isn't in my top list of my, you know, portfolio, if I've got several, I'm probably not actively plugging it, right? So find partners where your business can be big business for them. I think that's just good advice, regardless of if you're going reseller or bundle or marketplace. If your product can help them sell more, they're always going to be motivated to throw you in the package. And if it doesn't, it's probably not worth your time to pursue. That's so true. Uh, you know, one of the things, Sean, that uh, I've admired most about getting to know you is this this willingness uh, that you have to just confront at all times what's not working. Help me better understand how you are constantly uh, doing that, because it's easy to do it in, in, in hindsight or retrospective. But it seems to me like you're constantly doing. How, w- talk to me about that. I'm a big believer that there are two things that as a sales leader or as a, a startup leader that you need to do in order to be successful. And the first one is one that was always easy for me. And I think a lot of people who start businesses, it's easy for them. It's, it's kind of believing in your bones that you're going to make it, right? No matter how hard it is, you're going to make it. The other one, the one that you're hitting on right now, Jim, is you, know, you have to be able to confront the most brutal facts of your reality. You need both of those things to make it. If you're just confronting the brutal facts all the time, You'll get, you'll get you know, depressed, you'll flame out, you won't want to do it anymore. If you're confronting the brutal facts with that, that optimism, okay, like I, I, there's got to be a way out of this. We just got to look at this one, see what's not working. That's how you're going to start getting better because you'll start looking at other opportunities. You'll see things more clearly. So don't be afraid to, to recognize that things aren't working. You know, everyone makes mistakes. I, I can't think of one business where they just had business development figured out right away. 
How much time are you spending on something like that? So let's say that you, uh, you're you doing the, the retrospective, you're trying to see what's not working. How much time are you spending there? And then how much time are you spending on actually trying to put the next solution or the next test uh, or, or something like that into place? For me, it's a very iterative process. I'm looking, and, and again, at all elements. So I, we can even go back to that, that first example. When I first started doing sales, right? I would send in those 20 emails, highly personalized, and I didn't get any responses. And so then I said, okay, you know, I'm doing this all by hand. How can I make this better? This is taking me a lot of time. I'm not getting any results. I need to find a way to test faster. So, you know, in terms of reviewing that process, after I had sent a handful of emails, uh, currently I would be about every week, I would sit down and look at my best performing stuff, see where what needs improvement just from a content perspective. But even earlier days when you're tweaking process, you're checking things out multiple times a week to make sure it's not broken that your, your content, your emailers are going to the right folks, that your talk track, your dials are, are happening as they should be happening. And so you're, you're reviewing and as you're going through those reviews, you're going to have ideas. It's just part of, the, part of the game, right? So make sure you're documenting those improvements. You don't need to run with every single one right away. But once you've got a handful of ideas on how to make it better, think about which ones will have the biggest impact. And then you can implement and, and kind of keep that flywheel going and getting better and better. Well, help my listeners generate some of those ideas, maybe. Like when you think back to subject lines and, and body copy of emails, what were some of the best that uh, just performed really well, got a lot of response from your outreach? I think we'll, we'll dive into subject lines and then body. I, I, I like that one as well. So subject lines for me, if you're not batting at least 20%, you're doing something wrong from an email perspective. Um, and yeah, from an, e- from an email open rate So from an open rate perspective. So what, what I mean by this is what, what I've found success with is some levels of personalization. So, you know, you want to have the person's name. If you can have, if you have a category that you're targeting, you know, you might do quick question. So we'd had a quick video question and then like the person's name. That was a good one for, for open rate for us. I think you want to really walk the line with email subject lines. You don't want to be misleading. You don't want to say, you know, coffee this Wednesday, Bob, stuff like that. I think, yeah, it'll get it opened, but ultimately you're not scoring too many points when I realize that I have no idea who the, who the heck you are and you're just some random, you know, sales guy trying to prospect me. But you also don't want to be, you know, crazy, have this crazy, long, super specific email. You want to try to walk the line there of, of letting them know what you're interested in about, but also trying to make it more personal. And so for me, it was always try to use the person's name in your subject line if you can. And then talk about the category because you've got a question. For me, I have a question on enterprise video. I want to know what you're using. I want to know like what, how you're liking it. And then I've got a couple you know, pain points I can touch on to see if those are a fit and if we should connect further. Yeah, that's the subject line side. Gotcha. I like you that. You also asked about the body content, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you, you talked earlier about, you know, having to come up with the, the why anything, the why us, why now as, as separate uh, emails. But, you know, how long uh, were the, the messages that you were sending out? Like, what kind of questions were you asking? Were you just trying to set uh, time to meet? Were you asking them questions about their product? For like, us, what, what, eventually what when, like? We, when we developed the process and had BDRs and, and you know, had a, a whole sales engine kind of running, it was a little different. But at the beginning, we weren't looking for qualified opportunities. At the very beginning, we were just looking to talk to anybody and anybody who would talk with us. Eventually, we realized that wasn't a good strategy and we should be you know, asking, you know, do they have a budget already aligned for this? Are they looking to make a move within a year? You know, just get the timeline pieces kind of straight, figuring out does, is this person's role. Almost you think about it like the classic BANT, you know, budget authority need timeline uh, qualification criteria. So we, we eventually went to that. The body content for emails really did reflect those three questions that we talked about earlier. And what I mean by that is, you know, we would try to answer a, uh, one question, maybe two in a given email. And then depending on, on the types of responses we'd get from that email, 
we were very good at qualifying out our no's. So when someone would, would say, yes, like I want to meet with you. Awesome. We would do the meeting, you know, learn from the customer. Anytime someone would also say, no, I don't want to meet with you. It was our job to figure out why, right? No means so many things. I, I, I can't tell you how many times people just treat no as like it's the end at the end of the end of time, right? There's there's no can mean I don't really know what you do. I mean, has that ever happened to you, Jim, where you know, someone says, Oh, I'm not interested, and then you keep talking to them a little bit and then they come back and they're like, Oh, I thought it was something completely different, you know? All the time. The no meaning I don't really know what you do. Uh, I've had several people who who wrote me some pretty strongly worded no's and then six months later would, would come back and buy from us. So no also can mean not right now, right? I don't have time for this right now. Loop back with me later. And so, yeah, just making sure that you're you're going through that that rigor with the three questions, the why anything, why us, why now. You're trying different pitches and then you're seeing how, how your prospects are responding. Are they understanding the pitch? Are they understanding why they should talk to you even though they have another solution? Are they understanding why you should be a priority? even though they may not have been thinking about your product before today. As you think through, oh yeah, those emails, that'll tell you how you're, how you're stacking up. What's, what's your strategy, Sean? I'm intrigued by this because I'm with you on the no, right? Like no to me, well, I, I'll say it a different way. I don't believe you're in a sales process or a sales cycle until you've heard the, the word no at least once, right? So uh, I'm definitely one of the advocates of going for no and, and doing it early. But what's your strategy? So when you get that no back via email, um, it, you know, because you said you had some strongly worded ones in the past. What do you say back? How do you open it back up? And, and how often are you getting responses? Because uh, there are oftentimes when you get that no, it's go away forever, right? But what's your strategy? I would always have a couple questions. And the first question I would send back in response to just a, a plain email that says no or no thanks or something like that is an email that asks how they're handling your category today. So do they understand actually what you're doing? So I would say, you know, for, for going back to ILOS and Enterprise Video, I would say, you know, okay, great. You know, it looks like you're using XYZ for enterprise video today. How are you handling this? And then that, that item I would add is usually one of the pain points associated with that competitor. If they know what that is and they're like, oh, we're handling it this way, then, then you go, okay, maybe they do know what we're talking about. If they have no clue, you might have been talking to the wrong person. That happens all the time. They, they probably are, aren't interested legitimately if they just, I have nothing to do with this. I have no idea what it is. Um, so you just got to kind of flush it out and, and do your diligence. Qualify out those notes. I really like that. How are you handling? And then insert the pain point that you know that uh, that specific product or competing service or something like that has. I think that's really good. I, I want to shift maybe now, Sean, away from the outbound to, uh, I guess, the opportunity uh, phase. I know at least some in my research that I've had uh, or was doing for this show, you're an advocate for pilots uh, and, and how to turn those pilots into real true uh, opportunities that you can sell. Talk to me about that. How do you see the role of a pilot and, and what do you advise companies do? I think a pilot is a great way, if you're involved in enterprise sales, to have your customer test the waters. So there's kind of this, this information problem, right? Like the customer, they, they believe you, they trust you as the salesperson, they, they see the demo and the product. But they, at this point, most people have been burned with, with good looking demos that resulted in bad products or bad rollouts. And so it kind of creates this information where you as the rep, you know if your product is good, you know if other people have rolled it out successfully or not, but the customer can't really know that, right? I mean, they know what you're telling them, but they, they don't really have a way of seeing it. In some cases, this can create friction. You know, your, your deal might get stuck because they say, oh, you know, I'm not sure if I can roll this out at an enterprise level without seeing something, some, some proof points first. 
And I am a big advocate for paid pilots. I think if you're good at something, do not do it for free. One reason for paid pilots is that it proves that your, your contact has the ability to go and get budget. You don't want to have a successful pilot and then have the six months or the year go by and then have this person say, oh, you know, I, I couldn't get any money for this. I don't know how to do that. And you're just going, really? <laughs> I spent all this time with you and you couldn't get me over the goal line uh, even after we had this win. So, so on the pilot side, you know, definitely make sure you're, you're asking for paid pilots. I think it can be a great gateway into those larger enterprise deals. What kind of dollar amounts are we talking about here, Sean, for the, for the paid uh, pilot? I mean, it depends. I, I would do like low five figures. So, you know, grand a month, two grand a month, something like that to get people to try our software. Uh, again, at scale, you know, enterprise video might run anywhere from, oh, I don't know, a couple hundred grand, you know, is kind of what our, our price points would be at, at you know, a bigger, a, a decent sized company, I guess is what I'd say. So, so yeah, so mid five figures, nothing, nothing like nominal, like a hundred bucks that anybody could swipe on. You want to make sure that they know kind of the, the process to go get some actual budget. And what about timeline? Is there a certain certain amount of time that you allow them to be in that phase or, or how do they how do they get out of it? I definitely would always encourage you to have a timeline on your pilots. Otherwise people might think the pilot can go forever and never end up paying you the real the real contract, right? That stinks. So so with that in mind, it, it differs a little bit by industry and it also differs by segment. So if you're targeting enterprise, if you're targeting higher education, areas that have you know slower cycle times typically. You might run a pilot deal for you know six months. You might run it for up to a year. Uh, if you're targeting mid-market and people that move faster, you might do a one-month or a two-month, something where it's just quick. They can see if it works and then roll over right after that. I'm not a patient person. So even when I was doing enterprise sales, I was much more on that one to two month. Hey, I'll give you, I'll give you a taste, but uh, we got to close this big deal. I, I like to go to Roost Chris and I can't do that on, uh, on pilots. So uh, <laughs> Sean, I, I'm loving this conversation, but I got to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to my sponsors. When we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away and sales sooners, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back and it's time for the money round. Sean, are you ready for the money round? Let's do it. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional? So I believe there really are no cheat codes when it comes to sales. You need to put in the time. And from an early day, you know, the moment I made that decision that I was going to sell this product and, and learn startup sales, I put in the time. So I'd be in at you know, 7 a.m. into the office trying to figure out my content for the day, trying to figure out who I could dial and really just get the reps in because it's, it's like anything else. If you put enough time at it, you can be great. If you were to start over today in sales, Sean, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing? I would spend as much time as I could talking to prospects or potential customers. What are their pain points? What do they like about their current solutions? What don't they like? What, what are they struggling? The customer knows the answer, right? So often we, we lose ourselves going at the whiteboard a million times. I would rather spend my time talking to, talking to the person who actually knows what's right or wrong. Amen to that. Two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose? Well, I love to win. I believe that you're, you're playing the game of, of startup sales. You're rolling the dice, moving the pieces around the board. 
it's not because you're, you're trying to avoid losing. I think getting a win and avoiding losing are very different mentalities. So I'm always after, after the W. What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others? I actually would really recommend the book I just finished. So it's called Ego is the Enemy by Ryan Holiday. And it's really about how you can keep yourself really grounded at a fundamental level. The moment you start believing the hype about your company or about yourself, that's where you can start making all kinds of mistakes. So it's a great book just to stay, stay level-headed. You know, sales is one of those ones where you're always kind of riding high or riding low, depending on if you crush the quarter or miss your number. So I think it's a good one just to, to keep handy. Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Sean's suggestion of The Ego is the Enemy for free, head on over to salestuners.com slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's salestuners.com slash book for Ego is the Enemy. And I also highly recommend a lot of the books uh, that Ryan Halliday has written. He's done an amazing job uh, as an author in the last few years. So uh, Sean, what is currently at the top of your bucket list? I've spent a ton of time in the United States locally, and I actually recently took a trip to Europe to visit a startup that I worked with uh, over the summer, and I loved it. I want to do more travel. So see, see not maybe a ton of countries, but just kind of get out there and learn about other startup ecosystems, learn about what, what life is like in different spots. I will say, though, Jim, my, my French is, is very bad and my Spanish is worse, but I'm trying to figure out how to make it work. Sean, what's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales students out there grinding today? I would go back to the customer, right? The customer knows which features matter, which ones don't. If you can optimize your time and focus just on doing one thing, try to increase the amount of time you're on the phone, talking to prospects, talking to customers. That's going to get you the best info and the best data you can use to, to make those audibles and, and grow your business. I'm grateful to have had the chance to connect with Sean today. He's been working in the startup space for several years now, and going from zero to over $1 million is really hard because you're truly figuring out how to position everything at that point. If you want to stay in touch with him, he's very active on Twitter, and his handle is at Hig1921. That's at H-I-G-G-1921. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, manufacture urgency. Pushing a prospect across the finish line is one of the biggest questions I get on a day-to-day basis. That said, without fully understanding what a company has to gain or lose with any decision, will leave you standing alone at the finish line. Let me be very clear. I'm not a fan of end of the month or end of the quarter discounts. However, Sean's notion of exploding offers really intrigued me. If you're in a competitive situation and you can get a prospect to show you their current bill or current contract, well, that might be worth making a deal. Number two, don't position yourself as the best. Unless an analyst or third-party researcher has literally labeled your offering the best, don't talk like you are. Doing so will only make you look foolish to any sophisticated buyer. Understand, I am not saying you shouldn't believe in your product. But if you dig in and understand the competitive landscape, what capabilities each company has, as well as the pros and cons of all the different offerings, well, you'll be able to have better conversations with prospects. You'll be able to break down the specific needs and align those to the things you do well. And whatever you do, don't disparage your competition. It may work for you in the short run, but long term, you'll be the one looking like a fool. Number three, use pilots to close deals. At this point, it seems like every buyer has had an experience in being duped by a salesperson or buying something that had a less than successful rollout. If you have a cautious prospect, but you know your product will help them, offer a pilot. Making it a paid pilot ensures that your contact is one that can actually go obtain budget. 
before rolling it out, set expectations on both ends. You want to understand and even suggest how the prospect will use the product during the pilot period. Lastly, you want to set the acceptance criteria up front to deem what success will actually mean. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at SalesTuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there.